With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, as always. We're excited to be back on the pod waves. I know it's been a long break. Uh, Luckily, we have a ton of great stuff to talk about. Uh, New arenas, teams in the NCAA tournament, and much, much more. Folks, we'll start with the hockey team. A couple of pieces of good news for them. Uh, After ending their season, they just opened ground on a brand new arena and practice facility that is going to be right on campus. We're expecting it to look very nice. And uh, the, the, the program also extended head coach Mike Cavanaugh for five years. So um, we're expecting continued growth and stability from the ice bus. But uh, Connolly, how do we feel about the latest developments for UConn men's hockey and women's hockey? Yeah, it was a pretty good two-week stretch or so for I, I mean, specifically the men's hockey program, but both programs really just to kind of start with Cavs extension. It was something that we knew was coming. We'd reported that they were in the final stages or I forget what the exact wording was, but it was coming down the pipeline. Even when April came and went, when his contract expired, there was never anything that was going to happen. He's happy here. And I thought one of the most interesting things that Dave Benedict said at the groundbreaking ceremony for the arena was he said that Cav is a coach who's shown that he can overachieve and he can kind of win more than the means that he has kind of referencing the facilities and just the investment that UConn's put into hockey at this point with the program in hockey East and for starters. Yeah, that's accurate. He's, I think you can point to the lack of playoff wins as really probably the only complaint that you can have with Mike Cavanaugh's tenure so far, they've probably exceeded expectations in terms of the regular season. Cav loves saying how only three schools, BC, BU, and UMass, one of whom just won the national championship, have consistently finished above UConn in the hockey standings the last four years. They've finished at least fifth in three of the last four years, fourth last year included in that. So the program's definitely on an upward trajectory. Their recruiting has been consistent and solid. They just had a really, really good freshman class come in and play very well during their first year in stores. The next step, obviously, is winning playoff games, winning a hockey's championship, getting into the NCAA tournament. We thought they had a chance this year. They probably would have been in if they beat Providence in that first round game of the hockey's tournament. Those are the next steps. And obviously, it's going to help when you have a new facility, a new arena that they just broke ground on a few weeks ago. And Mike Cavanaugh said after the ceremony that he's always told his assistants that they're never going to use the lack of a facility or the facilities that they had as a crutch for why they're not achieving certain things in their program. They're never going to promise a recruit that he can play in one. They're never even going to talk about it until they had a new rink that was tangible and that they could actually use basically a shovel in the ground for it. They weren't going to use it. 
And finally, now that the ground has been broken, they can use that. I think it's not necessarily going to help their entire recruiting philosophy because they already recruit pretty well. They have shown just in the past few years that they're good at finding these guys who aren't necessarily, I guess, the equivalent of five-star recruits with, you know, Johnny Evans, who was a good player in the BCHL, a really good player in the BCHL, I should say, turns into an All-American for UConn. Or then you get to the past year, a guy like Hudson Chandor, who of the recruiting class they brought in, he was probably third, maybe fourth, fifth on my list of guys that I thought were going to have the biggest impact. And our, he was honestly their best forward freshman. I think him and John Spetz, a defenseman, were the two best defensemen kind of hand or the two best freshmen hand in hand. So they're also really good at finding those hidden gems. The next step is going to just be finding, getting those elite American talents. Tage Thompson is really the only one that you can point to and say a legit, I guess, five-star equivalent first round pick American talent to come to UConn. If they can start getting those guys on a more consistent basis, start having pretty much every single year, you have one or two guys that are at least candidates for the Hobie Baker award. Whereas I think they've only had three total and four total. And three of those were all in one year with Tage Thompson, Mac Latunov and Adam Huska. So get those type of talents consistently be landing players on the hockey's all-star team, specifically the first team more than once every seven years. That's where I think the facility is going to help. And now that they've got the shovels in the ground, they can actually start pitching that to recruits. The freshmen that are coming in this year, they're going to play in it midway through their sophomore year. The guys that they're recruiting for further out, they're going to play most, if not all of their career in this new facility. So it's whatever you want to say about the cost or the size or anything like that. It's going to be a really, really good practice facility for this program. The women's hockey program too, which has been pretty successful again, given the facilities that they have. So it's just a really, really big step forward for UConn hockey in general. And it's finally just UConn showing that they're willing to invest in the program to try and help turn both these programs into national title contenders, because both of them are really just sleeping giants and you get the right people in charge, which it really seems like they do with Mike Cavanaugh and Chris McKenzie. If you can just get them the proper tools, hopefully you can get the results. Dan, what are your thoughts on the size of the arena? I know that's something that's been talked about, uh, so much as these plans have changed and ebbed and flowed throughout the past seems like two to three years. So what are your thoughts on that size of the arena and the, and the thought of playing games between the XL center and this new arena, much like the men's and women's basketball teams do with the split between Gamble and the XL center. Right. So if you're unaware, the arena is going to seat roughly 2,600, there's going to be more standing room only space. I don't know what that exact number is going to be, but at least 2,600 seated. Most of those are going to be chair backs. Hockey's used to have a requirement for a 4,000 seat minimum. That requirement apparently doesn't exist anymore, according to Dave Benedict. And then also Benedict mentioned at the groundbreaking that they don't know exactly what the split is going to be between XL and the new arena. He did kind of send more or less a veiled threat to Hartford or the state of Connecticut saying they're expecting some significant investment in the XL center so that it's a more viable facility for all their programs. So they're still going to be playing games in Hartford. They've had a lot of success there. I think it's probably a better arena than people give it credit for as at least in terms of fan and amenities, it's not a bad place to go watch a game. Obviously it's not the best arena in the world, but it's, it's perfectly functional. They've gotten good crowds there before 
it is a hockey arena. Obviously it used to have the whalers. There's no bad sight lines in there, especially when they pretty much only have the lower bowl available for hockey. So I think it still brings a lot of benefit to this program to have fans be able to get to an easier location, a bigger location. They don't do it on a consistent basis, but on a fairly regular amount, they get capacities of 5,000, 6,000. I think they've had a few eight and 9,000 crowds in there as well. So yeah, you want that bigger space for the bigger games you're going to have, especially later in the season. I don't know what it is, but it always seems like the fan support seems to pick up down the final stretch. So I don't really know what the exact number split should be. And in terms of the size, I think it's probably a little small, but I'm kind of waiting to make any judgments on it just because we simply don't know. Their attendance has kind of been dropping in Hartford since that first year in Hockey East. There have been a lot of nights at the XL Center, even on weekends. I mean, we talk about the weekday games a lot in terms of those having no one there. A lot of the weeknight games, or the weekend games against some of the lower opponents, or maybe just when there's a conflict with another UConn game, there's just not a whole lot of people at those games. So yeah, you still want the bigger one, but I'm going to reserve judgment on what the capacity, if this capacity is too small until not even just the end of the first season, because I think there's still going to be that novelty to it, the people wanting to come see it. They could sell out the arena every single time in that first season or the first half season, whatever it proves to be. And I still don't really think that would be a great measurement of, no, this is definitely too small. I think you kind of have to see it over the span of one, two, three seasons. And then also when you just talk about the success of the team, If UConn's a national title contender every single year in 2025, 26, 27, those years, and they're selling out the arena every single year, yeah, but is that realistic? Or are they going to be more of this fringe hockey's title contender that they kind of are now, where if the team has a down year, you're having trouble getting to that 2,600 number. So I'm just interested to see how it ends up being. Again, I think it might be a little small, but I'm just going to wait and see until we kind of have a large enough sample size to really make a determination on it. And I've seen people say that, oh, it should be 5,000 minimum. It should be six, seven, 8,000 minimum. I think the right number probably would have been somewhere around 3,300, similar to what Schneider Arena is. I don't think you need anything huge. And as everyone has been saying, and I'm not trying to take the party line here, but I think a smaller arena does bring a better atmosphere. And I think there is a lot of value in that. So yeah, again, I don't, I don't know if it's too small. Dave Benedict really seems to think that it's the right size. So I feel like if UConn is having an issue where every single time they play there, it's selling out and tickets are at a premium, that probably means the program's in a pretty good space and the fan base is growing, which are two good things. So I, I'm just going to wait and see. The attend you mentioning the attendance dropping is a is a really really good and important point. You know, it's and it and also. You know, an, an average attendance does not mean that that amount of people attend at least every single night. To your point, there are a lot of nights at the XL Center where 2,600 seats would be plenty. Um, and, and I think we can all understand how a game in stores is just likely to have less attendance than, uh, than a game in Hartford to begin with. So, you know, it'll, it'll depend on what the split of games is and what types of games are there. I think they will put some extra effort into making it so that at least some of the marquee games are on campus. Um, I think that will benefit the, the, the student environment, the student buy-in around the program significantly, which is kind of a big thing, 
that I that I think you could argue um, compared to some other Husky programs, the hockey is just naturally a little bit behind. There's less of a history of doing it. All those things come, uh, you know, add to that that up until next year they they have to take a bus to go to any home game. So you eliminate some of that. You create some campus atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I also agree that hopefully that first year, there's a ton of excitement around it and they do sell out every year. And that kind of is the point. If they're running into that problem, it's a good problem to have and they're selling tickets for um, more than they thought they would. The The bigger thing is just, you you had to get this project approved. The, the team, the program needed this. They needed it almost more so for the facilities and the practice, you know, the, the practice environment, player development, for what it means for bringing in players and making it feel like a top tier division one program, which is, which is what they're trying to be. So, you know, I, I think all of that being said, and then recognizing that there will be some sort of split, of course, the capacity is fine. I think what, what we should be happy about is that it'll look really nice. It'll be a great place to catch a game. It's going to be part of this, you know, amazing new, what, what are they calling it? Olympic village. Uh, that that's, you know, new soccer, new softball, new baseball, and it all looks amazing. Um, and, and, and all of that is great. Um, you know, the price tag, it's not my money with all due respect to the ones complaining about that. Um, it's not my money. It's uh, probably not your money unless you're a member of about like 12 families scattered about the area. So yeah, I, I think it's really exciting to have the hockey arena finally you know, I think this is something, as as we've said on our hockey podcast, it's something if Mike Cavanaugh knew it would be eight years until they're breaking ground, he might not have accepted this job. So good for making it happen. It was it was very, very needed. And look, the program has done fairly well thus far. And this is going to give them a new boost. If Kavanaugh can take them, take them to that next level, that's that's what we're expecting. So now now everything is in place to make that happen. We saw UMass win a national championship, which I think uh, no matter how much you follow hockey probably hits UConn fans with a sour taste. So we know it's possible. And I, I think it's just, again, that plus the extension of Kavanaugh, huge, huge amount of optimism continuing to build around the program for me. Yeah. And I also think this upcoming year is probably, it should be their best team ever. They are losing a decent amount of players, particularly Jan Kuznetsov, one of their top defensemen, their goaltender, Tomasz Vomanska, a few other guys here and there, Kale Howarth forward, all the seniors. But for the most part, they're not only going to be getting improvements from everyone who's currently on the roster. I think we've seen pretty consistently over the last few years, at least since I've covered the team, that guys who are in the program always seem to develop maybe some at a slower pace than others. Some guys always take jumps here and there. They've got a lot of talent already on the roster. They're going to be adding to that a couple grad transfers. One who's a goalie from union. Who's just had really, really good stats at union, despite playing on some really bad teams. Also a forward from Yale. Who's just not flashy, but just puts up solid, solid numbers, which is just someone that you need in the lineup. And then we know one or two freshmen that are coming in that one freshman chase Bradley, a forward, everyone in the program seems really, really excited about him. They want to make a couple more additions that we don't know at the moment. I don't even know who they're going to be. So yeah, I think it's going to be a really good team next year. Also, we learned that uh, Gino and Cav are golf buddies, which I thought was cool. 
always good to see friendships developing across the athletic department. And extension buddies too. Both of them signed your new contracts, right? Would you look at that? What a segue, huh? Look at me. Extension twins. Extension twins. Yes, we have Gino for five more years. Also good. I think that's all we need to say about that one, really. Although, I mean, five years without a national championship. I I know. He's probably on thin ice. You have to start to wonder. We lowered the standards, but it's, you know, he's he's a career guy. He's a career UConn guy. We just got to give it to him. Yep, I'm sure Gino is happy to have have his uh, his freshman get into campus, which happened this week. Did that happen? This weekend, I think Sunday, both AZ and Amari tweeted about it. Yeah, ex- exciting stuff happening with them. Um, but yeah, good good that uh, that Gino and Kavanaugh are golf buddies and contract extension buddies. Maybe they have the same lawyer. Who knows? On to a team that is actively playing a season right now, which we love to see. Today is June 2nd that we're recording, but we're eagerly anticipating UConn baseball's return to the NCAA tournament. They had a really great year, mounting a huge win streak to win the Big East regular season crown and also take the Big East tournament. We, we have all seen the Huskies play quite a bit over the past few days. Uh, in addition to having this this excellent season, they opened a brand new ballpark on campus, Elliott Elliot Ballpark. Lovely, lovely place to catch a game. They opened it up to the public for the final home series against Seton Hall. Really great time. Yeah, we're, we're excited for the NCAA tournament. They drew the South Bend Regional. They'll be playing Michigan on Friday. I mean, I think the thing that stands out if, if you watch this team is obviously they've just got such such a live lineup uh in terms of offensively you know anyone can get a hit any a lot of people are very dangerous um and it seems like they have enough pitching to get by but uh how are you guys feeling about this team what excites you about jim pender's squad yeah like you said just watching them through the big east tournament i hadn't had a chance to really watch them a ton early in the regular season especially when women's basketball and hockey and everything's going on but I got to a couple of games and it's just always, it feels like they're just hitting the ball and it's not the same guys over again. I mean, they have the legit studs like Kyler Fedko, one biggest player of the year or Reggie Crawford, who is just a specimen at first base. I mean, that dude can lift a car or Pat Winkle is projected to go high in the MLB draft this July. They've got some really, really good hitters. And then you just kind of fill that in with a bunch of really solid guys. I mean, Eric Stock, that dude just hits the ball. He's not flashy. He's probably not going to take it out at much, if at all, but he just gets hits. Same thing with like guys like Christian Fedko, Kyler Fedko's brother. He gets really timely hits and he's just a guy that knows how to have an at bat. They've just got such a deep lineup that you can't ever really have a easy at bat and then they've got some guys that can come off the bench we really haven't seen the bench a ton in the postseason but they do have guys that can come off the bench and contribute too so they've just got a really fun lineup to watch their pitching staff it's a little tough to judge because i haven't watched them a ton but apparently the metrics for the pitching staff are just off the charts especially in the bullpen and you have at least two front of the rotation guys in Austin Peterson and Ben Kasparias, who have just been phenomenal this season. You've got a closer in Caleb Worcester, who is really just the latest in a line of unbelievable closers for UConn going back to 
Pat Rotolo to John Russell, PJ Poulin, Jake Wallace, who arguably had the best season of any relief pitcher in college baseball history his junior year. And now Caleb Worcester for the last couple of years, he's just been really, really good. So yeah, I don't know as much about those kind of fringe bullpen guys, but a couple of years ago when UConn had their really, really good teams with the core of, you know, Anthony Prado, Mason Fioli, Jake Wallace, Connor Moriarty, you know, those names, they just really were kind of thin in the bullpen where Penders really only trusted one or two guys. It seems like at least he has a lot more trust in the guys this year. The key, especially in the regional that I think UConn always seems to run into is if you can win your first game, that just completely changes where you are. If you can stay out of that loser's bracket, it is infinitely easier to get through to super regionals because when you lose and then you not only have to play in the loser's bracket, but you have to get to that final and beat the team that got there from the winner's bracket twice. That happened to them in Oklahoma city way back in 2019. They beat Oklahoma or not Oklahoma city, Oklahoma state in Oklahoma city. They beat Oklahoma state in the first game in just this unbelievable back and forth contest. And then the second game, they just, didn't have the guys to throw out there. I think Penders even tried to ride. He had Jake Wallace and CJ Dandino and Caleb Worcester. And he tried to ride those three guys in both games. And the wheels just kind of came off in the second one and they started making errors and they really just couldn't hit the ball. It just takes a lot out of you when you're playing that extra game. I think the loser's bracket is always during the day too. So if it's hot, wherever you're playing, you have to deal with that. I remember when we were in coastal for the 2018 tournament, they lost the first game and they were playing during the day and it was brutally, brutally hot in that South Carolina heat. So winning that first game is really key, but I think they just have enough. They've got a couple guys who have above average arms and plus stuff. And then I think they have a lot of guys who are just good And that's probably better than maybe having two or three plus guys in the bullpen and having a bunch of below average guys, which they've had in the past. So I don't necessarily feel good when anyone besides Caleb Worcester is coming out of the bullpen, but I don't feel terrible like I did a couple of years ago either. Yeah, I think this is definitely a different team than what we've seen in the past. I don't think offense is going to be an issue this this weekend in the South Bend Regional. Uh, But Dan, you brought this up and it just got me thinking. I saw something today earlier that today when we're filming this uh, or recording this June 2nd, two years ago was the the Jacob Wallace game where he struck out seven straight Oklahoma state Cowboys to end the game. And, you know, maybe one of the greatest pitching performances I've ever seen. He, he was just unhittable and uh, seems like he's continuing to do his thing in the Red Sox work right now. So always good to see, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I haven't been able to watch a ton of this team uh, this year either, but the, Offense is certainly there, and I think it's going to play uh, regardless of who UConn is going up against. Uh, Kyler Fedko, like you said, unanimous Big East player of the year. First Husky to hit over 400 since uh, 2001. And the Winkle brothers, Chris and Pat, combined for 22 homers. They had 11 each. And Chris Winkle pretty much continued to be one of the best hitters on this team after making a big position change going from first base to, I believe he played, what, mostly center field, maybe a little bit of corner outfield this year. Um, feel like that kind of has been overlooked. That's not something easy to do to just completely give up the position that you've played for most of your career, made way for Reggie Crawford to come into that lineup and, and absolutely mash. Uh, so it's been a really, really fun offense. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on on the pitching side as well. I, I think Ben Kasparius is, 
is going to be able to put in it, you know, a solid performance this weekend. Caleb Worcester is one of the best relievers in college baseball. And we're probably going to see some Reggie Crawford on the mound. Um, and he hasn't pitched much, much this season, but when he has, he's been electric. Uh, big fastball, mixes in the breaking pitches very sparingly, but just goes up there and blows it by people and throws a good amount of strikes and, and makes it work. So really excited to see what this team can do. It, it seems to be a winnable regional. There's, I know, I don't know much about the overall scene of college baseball this year, but I do know there's a few teams that you want to stay away from. And Notre Dame, certainly a good team, but not one of those teams that you want to avoid at all costs. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's baseball. Things, things get weird, especially in college baseball. But you have to like UConn's chances to come out of this regional at the end of this weekend. And we cannot overstate enough. Reggie Crawford mashes the ball. It's, it's crazy. And, and I, one of you guys must have tweeted it, but from the blog account, it was like there was one hit where he had like a grounder right to the second baseman, but it was just way too hard. And it went like through him as if he was not even there. Uh, and and uh, I, I, we saw in the Seton Hall game, um, the extent to which on the right side of the field, the infielders are doing the Reggie Crawford shift. They're going back, you know, 25, 30 feet from where they normally are when he's up. It's, it's a crazy thing to see. Uh, that's the kind of insight you get from the places that go on site to cover these games the one and only the Yukon blog, but um, it, it really is fun to watch. I mean, it's like, I, I'm not going to pretend I'm some aficionado of the game of baseball. Uh, I think you guys know where, where I stand on that, but um, obviously like if, if you're just a, a lineup filled with bash bros, like that's always fun to watch. They're, they're scoring lots of runs. I, I do have to say, I mean, so Ben Kasparius, he's been an amazing pitcher. Look at his numbers on the year. His, his strikeouts, his, his, what is it? K per nine must be amazing, whatever they are, but why the hell was UNC not letting him pitch? He also set the strikeout record for in a single season at UConn. And he still has one more start at least. So what was North Carolina doing? Not letting him pitch. Why? What, what, What? This guy just went and was the ace for the number, you know, number 20 team in the country. Who, what, who do you think you are? That's all I have to I, say about I that. I think really. some of that is just due to some Jim Pender's devil magic and, and Coach Mack with, with the pitching <laughs> uh, staff. I mean, they do this every year. Like, uh, we, we've seen this with the guys that they've sent to the big leagues. Like, Kate, Kay, Fioli, they're excellent pitchers, you know, major league caliber pitchers, but they weren't that coming out of high school. And, you know, there's a reason that UConn is competitive all the time. Um, even with these, you know, world-class facilities now, it still kind of sucks to play baseball in the Northeast, especially when you could go play in North Carolina or Florida. So there is going to be, uh, there's going to be guys that get, you know, that pass over UConn to either go play in the pros or to go play down South. Um, but I guess North Carolina just had an embarrassment of riches, but uh, Penders is getting there. I mean, I think the stadium is helping one of his commits uh, for next year, Frank Mazzucato, probably the hottest high school pitcher in the country right now. Um, maybe, probably won't come to UConn, but, uh, through four straight, no hitters at one point. So, um, an elite talent. And I think that just goes to the success that the programs had and with the stadium being in place, uh, it allows Penders to go after and receive commitments from elite talent like that, from guys inside Connecticut that would normally go, um, to North Carolina, like Kasparius did, like Matt Harvey did, um, 
and, and so many other great recruits from the state. Right. Well, also just coach Mack, their pitching coach is just unbelievable. They had a stat during one of the broadcasts that UConn has had an all American pitcher in the last five completed seasons. And you kind of look at who those guys are last one, I assume would be Jake Wallace. And he was a guy that not only like barely came to UConn. I don't think he had any other division one offers. He had no money. He basically came here as a walk-on really was nothing special as a pitcher, as a freshman, and then just came out as a sophomore as this dominant setup guy had the best season arguably ever for any closer in college baseball as a junior, and then got drafted pretty high as a reliever. I think it was in the top 10 rounds by Colorado ended up getting traded to the Red Sox for a pretty good outfielder and Kevin Pilar. So the fact that he went from pretty much nothing to being a legit major league prospect is incredible. Mason Fioli, I imagine he was an All-American at some point. I don't think he was super highly recruited out of high school either. I think it wasn't as much as Ben or as Jake Wallace, but he still wasn't exactly a number one prospect. Tim Kate, he was going to, is it Cheney Tech, I believe it was, for HVAC. And he saw that there was a UConn camp and he had just come off Tommy John surgery in college or in high school. And he emailed the coaches saying that he wanted to come. And they said, well, you just had Tommy John. Like, what are you really going to do? So I, I'm pretty sure it's Tim Kate that this is the story of, but he comes in, shows up. He's a lefty. He threw right-handed. And I think he was hitting like 89 or something on the gun. And I think the coaches offered him a scholarship on the spot, not even knowing what the rest of his arsenal was like with his left hand had a filthy curveball. So again, a guy who was going to go, wasn't even going to go to college if he didn't come to UConn ends up being a stud. I don't know as much about the guys before that, but just they find these pitchers out of nowhere and they're unbelievable. And then sometimes it, it's almost like their top pitching prospects don't necessarily even pan out. So maybe they should just start going to like Glastonbury high school and Tolland high school and just pitching, like picking like the number two guy on that staff and then turning them into all Americans. Like that might be a better recruitment plan. So yeah, it is just kind of unbelievable how they pull these guys out of nowhere. And I guess Kasparius is the next one in that line. I'll also just say, you know, it is super promising to hear that, that the numbers look good on the bullpen. I mean, I know Worcester has been doing a great job, but it, it has seemed like the other relievers have done fairly solid um, and, you know, done a lot of, you know, longer stints of relief. Um, and I think we all, we all know from college baseball, like, I, I think it probably is true in major league baseball too, but it's like, you always want to get the starting pitcher off the mound, right? Like, and, and in, in college baseball, a game can really unravel for, for a team as they start to go to their bullpen and they're just like, ah, oh, shit. You know, like we just have dudes giving up runs and there's nothing we can do. Um, so for UConn to be able to have that in line, it it does help out um, in the situation where they're trying to pull off an upset or something like that. That's that's something that they could have on other teams, at least, is, is being a little bit stronger on that front. Because sometimes even really talented teams maybe don't have enough arms uh, or, or enough relief arms at times. Yeah, and Amon, to go off that, I think this could be the weekend where they maybe not unleash, but they definitely aren't afraid to deploy Crawford on the mound. Uh, they, they've kind of handled him. I don't know. They, they, they've managed his innings is probably the best way to say it, uh, just because doing, you know, mashing in the middle of UConn's lineup and going to the mound between innings is, is physically exhausting. So I think they've just wanted to handle that so he isn't beat up and, and broken down for when it matters right now. But I mean, this guy threw seven, he threw 7.2 innings and punched out 
17 batters. So that's Dan, check my math here. That's 20, what 23 outs and 17 of them were strikeouts. I mean, he, he's just an incredible talent. And I think, like you said, it, especially if UConn gets into that loser's bracket or loser's games on Saturday where they had that extra game, I wouldn't be surprised where we see, you know, an inning or two of Crawford just to kind of bridge the gap and give the starter a little extra cushion, give the bullpen a little extra rest. Um, definitely something that I think we'll, we'll probably see at some point this weekend because he's too talented not to, to be deployed, especially with the season on one. Yeah, and especially considering the coaching staff has, like you said, limited his innings, which also means that there isn't a whole lot of tape out on him. And at the same time, like, what are you even going to study? Like, he just throws heat. <laughs> like, catch it if you can. Like, if you make contact, good for you. But a lot of teams haven't figured out how to do that. So I think it also helps that there's just so much that they haven't really seen and there isn't a whole lot that they can break down. Whereas they have an entire season's worth of Casparius's tape and that stuff to try and find a hole in or something. So, and also it's not like you can tip pitches when you're just throwing gas. So that game will be taking place on Friday at 7 PM. Follow us at the Yukon blog for the, the channel. We don't have that info yet. Do we, we don't have the television info for the game anyway. I believe it's on ESPN and, and we'll have some pictures, you know, with, from our boots on the ground down in South Bend on Twitter and on our Instagram at UConn blog. So be sure to give that a follow as well. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll talk men's hoops and football professional podcast. All right, folks, a lot of interesting developments with the UConn men's basketball team. Uh, first and foremost, we got announcements from Isaiah Whaley and Tyler Pauly who were in their fourth year last year and had the opportunity to stay for a fifth year. We talked about last time, whether or not they would, what their options might be. Totally would have understood if they decided to leave, but much to our excitement, we got announcements from both Isaiah Whaley and Tyler Polly, relatively close to each other. I want to say within seven or 10 days of each other, at least um, that, that they'd be coming back huge, huge news for UConn. I think it's, it's awesome for them for depth, for versatility. Uh, you know, these are two guys who can play kind of the three, the four, maybe even the five in a smaller lineup. Um, guys who we all know and love uh, who have stuck with the program through, through good times and bad, including lots of bad. Uh, so hopefully they get a chance to end their careers uh, with a fifth year on a, on a really high note on next year's team. But yeah, how, how do you guys feel about the good news about Whaley and Polly? I think adding, adding, I guess, uh, Whaley and Polly is so much better than most of the options that UConn had on the transfer market. Uh, these are guys that, that are familiar with Hurley. They understand the system. They understand uh, what it takes to reach the NCAA tournament at UConn because they've, they've already done it once. Um, and it adds a lot of depth and experience to what should be a pretty good team, but uh, one that might struggle early on when they kind of adjust to life without James Booknight, who basically was the centerpiece of the offense for, for long stretches of time. Um, I've talked about my, my love for Whaley on, on this podcast numerous times. I, I think he's one of the best defenders that the best, the men's program has ever really seen. I think he's going to be, uh, more of that this year. He's an elite shot blocker. He can guard one through five, uh, incredible on pick and roll defense. 
and he's shown some development as an offensive player. So uh, he's going to be a major asset. He can slot right back into the starting lineup. And I think with another strong season, I know this is my hottest take, but I'm just going to keep going. I, I think he could get some, some low tier NBA looks. I really do just because of his defensive versatility and Polly has struggled a lot. Um, and you know, he's kind of been inconsistent as a scorer, but we've seen what the highs look like. Um, and he's just, you know, he's had stretches where he shoots the ball at a really high level. Uh, he's really, really long, really versatile, can play multiple positions. And I, I think that having both of them and having Polly off the bench could be something that's going to be uh, a major asset for this team. Yeah. Like you said, they're probably better than anyone else who's on the transfer market. I mean, Isaiah Whaley probably would have been one of the best bigs on the transfer market just to begin with. He's that good. And they're just two really, really solid players that aren't superstars, but you don't need them to be. And I think that's just what's going to be really good about this team is you have a lot of the turnover with losing book night, particularly with the scoring, but you have a really solid group of returners that should all make steps forward. I mean, even though these guys are going into their fifth year, I think we've seen even this past year that they're still developing in their games. They can still get better. So I think as kind of Madigan mentioned, if they can just get a little more consistent and can have less of the highs and lows, I'd rather have a, I guess a B plus Isaiah Whaley 95% of the time than an A plus Isaiah Whaley half the time and a C minus Isaiah Whaley the other half of the time. I think I'd much rather have something kind of closer to the middle. And the same thing with Tyler Polly. I think I'd rather have Tyler Polly hitting threes on a consistent basis rather than never missing and never hitting the way he kind of went this past year. So I feel like consistency is the biggest thing with those two. And yeah, it's definitely great that both are coming back. I don't think there's any denying that. And you can argue consistency is something that you can improve at, right? We're not asking them out of nowhere to improve their range or um, become a specialist at something that they are not, um, add something completely brand new to their skill set. Just do what you do, you know, do what you do really well uh, a little bit more consistently. And I think we can count on both of those guys to do that. I think you hear a lot of seniors in their fourth year kind of saying like, I, I realize how important it is. I realize, you know, buying into the team mentality. And these guys are basically getting a second chance at their senior year, uh, which, which is great. And I think can help put the team over the top. Your point about um, like them being basically like, okay, with being role players is, is really spot on, I think, and super important. People don't come, you know, you don't accept a division one offer and come to a school planning to be a role player on, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. That's just kind of the way it is when, when you're coming in so that you're going to have experienced guys ready to come in on, on either, you know, fifth starter roles or, you know, early bench roles. That's, that's going to be huge for the team. It's, it's great to have so much experience and depth across the roster. It feels like that's something that has improved every single year under Hurley, which I think is really great. I think, you know, if we, if we look at this lineup, it's, it's almost hard to figure out like exactly who the starters are going to be. I think you can, you can lock in Sonogo. I guess you can, you can lock in a cook if he's, if he's fully healthy, RJ Cole, Tyrese Martin. And then I, I think it could be, there's a lot of people that, that it could be. And, not even Tyrese Martin there. What do you guys think what the starting five might look like for next year? Yeah, I think, I think Sonogo and Whaley are locks. Um, and I think 
one of Cole or Gaffney is a lock. So we'll say, we'll say Cole, probably Martin, a cook, Sonogo, and Whaley. But I could see Jalen Gaffney going in as opposed to a cook uh, and playing with a, you know, a smaller lineup because I think there was a lot of success and, and Hurley saw that with the three guards. Uh, we also never really saw how Hurley would have handled James Booknight to start the season because he was suspended um, as, a, as a freshman. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of hype around Rasul Diggins and Jordan Hawkins. Um, so maybe they squeeze our way into the starting lineup if they really, if Hurley really likes what he sees and, and believes in, in the freshman class. So I don't think that's out of the question. I think it's unlikely, especially since uh, Jalen Gaffney is a really good, you know, capable guard already. But I think either him or Polly would be the sixth man off the bench. Uh, and it's it's a deeper team than last year. It's probably not as talented just because James Bokenite isn't on the roster, but one through eight or one through nine is probably better than it was last year. I think the only one who's really a lock to start is Adama Sanogo. I don't think there's any guarantee that Isaiah Whaley is going to start as much of a fan of Isaiah Whaley as I am. But if you have Adama Sanogo take a big step as a sophomore and a cook is healthy, I don't know how you keep a cook on the bench and then you're not going to be starting three bigs, even though a cook is less of a back to the basket big than most other players. But I think if a cook's healthy, he's probably going to be in the starting lineup. I would guess RJ Cole's in it. I wasn't a huge fan of RJ for a lot of last season, but I thought towards the end of the year, he really started playing well and really was playing to his strengths. So I thought he had a very strong end to the year. And as someone who is a very big Jalen Gaffney fan, I, defended him to my friends who didn't like him all season long. I thought he played phenomenal in that Maryland game. He didn't necessarily have the best game, but he was, I think out there more than anyone else, just fighting, doing everything he could to try and get UConn back in that game. And I think that goes a long way. And I've said a lot of times on this podcast, on our women's basketball chasing podcast, chasing perfection. I really don't think there was a whole lot of development from either the men's or the women's returners last season. So I think Jalen Gaffney could come and make a huge leap going into his junior year. And also, I don't think we should sleep on Andre Jackson. He made some pretty substantial strides from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was a fixture in the starting lineup, because not only is he just a very talented player, he's someone who I think is really versatile. You can put him in a lot of different spots. He doesn't necessarily fit into a position. And I think that kind of works well with this UConn team where you have RJ running the point. Maybe you have two bigs. I think you probably have two bigs in there one way or another with Adama. And then if he's healthy, a cook, and if he's not probably Isaiah. And then that fifth spot, I think is probably just going to go to the best guard out of Jalen Gaffney, Tyrese Martin, I guess Tyler Polly, we can throw in there too. And then one of those two freshman guards. And I don't know if anyone else really has much of an edge there just because we haven't seen what the freshmen are like. We don't know what the freshmen like might look like coming in Tyler Polly. I feel like it's more of a known quantity as is Tyrese Martin. So maybe if none of those other guys are standing out, you just have them in there for stability. And then Jalen Gaffney, if he makes a big leap, I think he could be in the starting lineup, but. I think Andre Jackson would probably be my dark horse pick to not only be in the starting lineup, but to be a guy that is a consistent starter. Because as we saw this past year, the starting lineup was not a game one. These are the starters. That's the way it is all season. It was definitely a fluid thing throughout the year. 
but I think Andre Jackson could very sneakily be a guy that's in the lineup every single night as long as he's healthy. Yeah, I agree, Dan. I think the lineup from the end of the year, or hopefully, uh, you know, knock on wood, if if all the chips fall right, the first NCAA tournament game is going to look a lot different than what it looks like when they tip off against CCSU to open the season. Uh, just because I think Sonogo and Jackson in the freshman class hopefully will make some significant strides and really start to become the, the new core uh, of this team under Hurley. I agree with Jackson. I, I just am worried about his offensive abilities right now, but I think he's the best distributor on the team. And, and that's not a knock on RJ Cole. I think Jackson is just an extremely talented passer uh, and just sees the game really differently than pretty much anyone else that that's come through this, this program in the last few years. Uh, there's also been a lot of hype in the off season around Richie, around Richie Springs. And we haven't really seen a lot of him in terms of live game action. So not sure what exactly that amounts to. Um, but there was a lot of buzz around him being one of the standouts from the, you know, the end of season workouts, the summer workouts uh, since their last tournament game wrapped up. So definitely something to keep an eye on. I think this freshman class should be a real game changer. I know Samson Johnson has shot up the recruiting rankings and has a really similar type of game to a cook um, in terms of offensive and defensive abilities and may be able to be a, a comparable shot blocker to Isaiah Whaley down the line. But uh, I'm pretty confident that we'll probably see yet Whaley or, or possibly a cook, but maybe not both of them uh, on the court at the same time for, for lots of stretches. But there's a lot of interesting pieces on this team. I'm looking forward to see how Dan Harley pulls them together. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, with, with the freshmen, the freshman guards, uh, Diggins and Hawkins, and, and just comparing them to the, the kind of like reserve guards and wings, you know, like Polly, Tyrese Martin, Andre Jackson, like you said, Conley, they're known quantities or known entities, whatever, but um, that that's a pretty high bar, right? For, for the freshmen to have to power through if they're going to earn substantial playing time or even a starting role. Um, so, you know, uh, Diggins in particular, I think we've heard a lot about, I think what probably really sets him apart, or at least I think makes him an attractive candidate for starting for a starting role is just that he's a, he's a ball handler. He's a playmaker. You know, he's, he's someone who's drawn comparisons to, Shabazz Napier, uh, you know, and Christian Vital and those types of like heady lead guards. Um, so, you know, I think that that element is always something you you want on the team. Maybe this year it's it's in a role off the bench as an energy guy, the way Shabazz and, and Kemba Walker were uh, at, at the beginning of their careers. Um, but yeah, it's 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 just you look at the roster and it's it's so great to see all that talent there. Um, multiple reserves on the bench who are capable. And, you know, again, speaking of these freshmen, we don't have to throw them into the fire the way we have with a lot of freshmen in the past with positive and negative results, I guess. But uh, I, I think for the team, it's going to be better that they don't have to rush these guys out in the event that they're not ready. Sometimes shooters don't, don't always translate at the next level immediately. And, and, you know, same could be for anyone really, but, I'm really excited by the by the depth and experience that they have, and agreed that that we're getting uh, we're getting great vibes around the program. And and yeah, we'll probably see a lot of different starting lineups, not having anything to do with injury, more having to do with kind of matchups and who's hot and and that kind of thing. Yeah, I do think for the freshmen, I I think Jordan Hawkins is going to be 
the first one to kind of get extended looks off the bench just because there is a little more guard depth this year, but Jordan Hawkins has a reputation as a, a pretty good, not elite, but a, a pretty solid three-point shooter. And looking at the roster on paper, assuming things more or less stay the same and, and some outside of some big leaps in, in terms of development, this team is, is not going to be very strong at shooting the three ball um, unless Tyler Polly can, can become extremely consistent. But if Hawkins can come off the bench and hit threes at a decent clip, he's going to work his way into the lineup uh, either as a six man or maybe starting if injuries or, or something else pops up, because I think that is the one weakness for this team right now. I, we, we've seen Polly shoot the ball. Well, we've seen, we've seen RJ Cole and Gaffney do it for stretches. A cook can step out and do it, but it's not a, a major part of his game. So if there's somebody that can profile as a, as a solid catch and shoot shooter or off the dribble uh, and really stretch defenses out, I think that's going to be a major asset. And right now Hawkins is the only one that we, you know, kind of a wild card, but we have an expectation that he could be a pretty good shooter. Yeah. I mean, I just can't get over how great the names are on this team. Like Rasul Diggins and Jordan Hawkins. Like if you put that on the Gus Johnson index, which would be how great their names sound when Gus Johnson is losing his mind at the end of an NCAA tournament game for something that they did those are two names that would be towards the top. And I mean, they've got guys like that all through the roster, but Rasul Diggins and Jordan Hawkins, those are just two great college basketball names. Jordan Hawkins. How was that? I tried it. I tried to do Gus Johnson. (laughs) You tried. It's It's hard to replicate. It's hard. Well, we also had some coaching news on the team. So Kevin Freeman moved into a different role uh, within the school you know, good, good for him for making that decision for himself and his family. Dan Hurley was able to hire someone who was previously on his staff in Luke Murray, uh, who did go to high school in Connecticut. He went to St. Luke's in New Canaan. Uh, He had spent time at Wagner, Xavier and Louisville and was previously on Hurley's staff at URI. So reuniting with his old boss Murray is widely known as a very good recruiter and a very, with a very sharp mind for the game. Seems like, seems like he's a good addition for the staff. You know, I'm not going to pretend like I know the landscape of assistant coaches here, but um, all indications are this, this will be another guy who can help with the recruiting as, as UConn continues to build. Also, we did just get word about UConn's matchup in the Big East Big 12 Challenge. Pretty fun. The Huskies will be meeting up with West Virginia, the former Big East rival. I think that's great. You know, it's like there's so much stupid shit that happens in this world. And uh, but at the very least, the Big East Big 12 challenge got it right with UConn's matchup in this uh, invisible invitational. That's part of the non-conference schedule next year. So I'm, I'm excited to see West Virginia and I'm excited for for Luke Murray, too. Yeah, I mean, honestly, of the teams in the Big 12, I don't think I'd really care about anyone else besides West Virginia and probably Kansas. I think Kansas would be a fun matchup, especially at like Gamble Pavilion. But I feel like West Virginia is probably the second most exciting in there. And the fact that they have the history, for some reason, I remember all of these games being close and not necessarily down to the wire, but they're always just kind of exciting games, hard fought games. So I think it's fun to have that one back. And also, just Bill Murray being at UConn games, I don't think you can go wrong with that one. Well, actually, yeah. you can well, considering how, how bad that? 
<laughs> how considering how bad Luke Murray's teams or the teams he's been coaching on have been when Bill Murray's at the games, maybe you can go wrong with that, but still that'll be fun to see. Yeah, I, I'm excited for for these West this West Virginia game too. I'm excited to see Huggy Bear on the sidelines with the uh the windbreaker on there. And uh I just remember watching those games growing up and just remembering the Morgantown crowds just being nuts and you know the Mountaineer with the gun in the uh in the arena going nuts. So uh it should be a really fun environment. And uh I do wish that the uh whoever set this up did pit Texas against Marquette for a little shock smart revenge game, but there's no way that uh, anyone would have actually let that happen, but I can dream. Yeah, no, they're, they're a great rival. I mean, you know, from the, from the big East heyday, they were, they were right up there as the team, one of the teams you hated the most Yeah, uh, and who gave UConn lots of trouble, even when UConn would, would have like their best teams from that era, like the, the, mid mid to late 2000s teams they they still had a lot of trouble with west virginia and i will never ever forget kevin pitsnoggle yes you just you never forget someone like that uh those people leave a mark on you so um the same way he has mark all over every square inch of his body uh but yeah um exciting matchup for for them there's a lot of pain in this world but not in the big east big 12 challenge Madigan, I, I don't think you could answer this because you edited my story, but Aman, what do you think the, the series was between UConn and West Virginia when they were in the Big East together? Like the record. I'll give you that it was 19 games total. Oh, okay. Oh, you're going to give me the number of games. I thought that would be part of it, that it would be like less than you less than I thought. Uh, I'm going to go uh, 12 and 8. or tw- Yeah, 12 and what did you say? 19 games? 12 and seven. Yeah. No, it was 15 and four. Oh, nice. Like it feels like West Virginia beat UConn way more than four times. Maybe they were wow. just important games that UConn <laughs> lost. Yeah. Like I thought it was way Maybe more than all four. four burned me so badly. Yeah. yeah I want to get the, the, uh, the blog stats team on that because I saw that and I just was like, I mean, sure. But I mean, uh, maybe, maybe we just, beat them a lot in the early years and then they Before got good later and it was like closer no, more recently i'll pull it up it was relatively even damn you mean evenly spread out yeah like you got the losses? last win or the losses? yeah they like they only played in the big east tournament twice and yukon won the most recent one and the other one was in 2008 which i'm pretty sure that season never even happened so i've never even heard of 2008 yeah, the, for some reason, college um, basketball just canceled everything from 2007 to 2008. Those two seasons didn't happen. I also don't remember anything from those years, truly. So One of them, they lost to like San Diego, I think. Oh, so, yeah, that was rough. <laughs> that was the roughest. I was at Ted's for that. I do remember Ooh. for that. <clears throat> we had, well, Were you a student um, during there? During that? I was loss? a student. I was a student for that. Yes, tragedy. Yeah, I, I was a student for that. For I was a student for George Mason. It must have sucked to watch UConn basketball in the NCAA tournament while you were a student. Deep I feel horrible for you. Yeah. It kind of does. It did suck. Thank you. It's <laughs> it's actually better to graduate and uh, be able to go when they make the final four. That that is cooler. I have to say. 
I, I just would have preferred not to go to UConn during the worst stretch of pretty much all sports in recent memory. I would have preferred anything but that. And the pandemic. The end mm. graduated. Well, yeah, double that pandemic year. That, minor that's minor worse. detail. Yeah. Uh, that's, kind of that to me is more rough than the football sports stuff. Because the sports stuff, at least you get, you know, the sports will go on forever, uh, hopefully, uh, as long as we don't <laughs> drop down to D3. But, you know, the it's like, it's not like my experience is, I'm not, I'm not any more or less happy about a championship. I don't know. It's hard to, hard to, hard to measure, but championships after you go to school are good too. You know, before you go to school, that's tougher. You know, you're like yeah, less of a fan word. before you go to the school than, than during and after. I don't know so. if I would agree with that. Well, I think I was different. more of a fan when I was a kid as compared to being a student and just having my soul slowly sucked, slowly sucked from me over the course of four years. Yeah. I mean, so I, look, I will say it's hard to explain. It's, it's, and especially if you just see outward success on the, on the score sheet or whatever, but I will say at the time when I was there, this is before board manual, I think. And the athletic department's like entire MO was just like, F you, you're going to everything. We're not going to try to be like cool or fun or put on programming. We know you all will just come to this stuff. So we're just going to make it as hard as possible and as annoying as possible to do. Uh, and I think, I think people, you know, if you're from the 2005 to 2009 range of uh, being at UConn can maybe uh, write into us and to say, tell us if you agree or disagree, but uh they really did not the like student fan experience. That was like not a thing. That wasn't a thing they thought about. And, and almost they actively made it like shitty. Like I, I went to first night my freshman year and then I just didn't go again. Cause I was like, they just, they just, they weren't trying that much. So pros and cons to everything. I think first night is just generally overrated. Like, yeah, it's exciting that it's like the start of the, but like, how exciting can you even make it? Like, I don't even know, yeah. unless you're bringing in Snoop Dogs and Snoop Dogg and strippers. Like, I feel like it kind of has a cap there. No, that's, so that's totally fair. I mean, the, you're just so starved for the basketball team. And in, in Connecticut's case, the basketball teams that, you know, you just, you just kind of want to watch. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, first look, uh, this, these are some throwback throwback storylines heading into first night, but like, Oh, first look at Rodney Purvis. Oh, you know, like, let's see what uh, this super hyped freshman is like. I remember, um, you know, it's like, Oh, let's see what Rudy Gay or Andre Drummond will do in the dunk competition. Like those are, those are cool things, but they kind of like, did, like, do they even do a dunk competition anymore? Uh, I don't remember what the last first night was, but a uh one of the recent ones that I was at, like they ran through everything. It was like, they were trying to get it over as fast as possible. It was like, all right, we're going to do the three point contest. Go shoot, 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 shoot. Okay. We're done. We're going to run over to like, give everything time to breathe. And like, real. Uh, it, it's just like, I just don't think you could do a whole lot with it. I think it's just a very tough thing to pull off. Well, and I don't even know if you can pull it off. Well, yeah. Like it's just, I remember in 2015, they, they brought out every single championship trophy. That was badass. That was kind of cool. But yeah, you, you, you got to win both 
chips to do that and and pull it off right. and and maybe win some in between too for for that to matter. I agree. They need to make first night better. I don't have the full solution, but maybe they combine it with like the Jim Calhoun charity game and they and they bring some alumni to come play against them. That that could be fun. I'd I'd watch a, a men's hoops and a women's hoops alumni, like alumni versus current scrimmage for both. I'd go to that if they were trying a little, trying a little. I kind of wanted to see them practice. Like let 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 them run through an actual practice. Not nothing crazy, but I don't know. It, the uh, the mixed scrimmage that they had for a few years was really fun, but towards the end when they're throwing lobs and everybody's running around just was like an injury risk waiting to happen, or at least it seemed yeah. that way to me. I'm sure it probably wasn't that big of a deal, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind going old school and having them run out, do, do some warmups, get a little rep in, have three man yell at everybody. Yeah. Like it, it'd be a great time. Like Hurley dropped some F bombs in the middle of Gamble in front of, you know, eight or nine K like. The Harlem Potter's music. Yeah. Gino looking at Here's, one of his bigs and telling them that they're the worst big in the country and they haven't <laughs> like just get Gino mic'd up and like yelling at his players. That that's just always audio gold. Like when he told Nika Mule or when he told Paige Beckers that he was glad that she wore five and Nika Mule wore ten because she was half the defender that she was. Like that's oh, just damn. the stuff that you need. Gino live. That does sound good. I I would watch that too. I'd I'd watch Gino do like a 10 minute, you know, stand up comedy set too. I think he could pull oh, yeah. that off as well. Did you know that UConn um, men's basketball has played Western Reserve? Western Reserve. I didn't know Western Reserve was an opponent that UConn could be playing. <laughs> Same, but uh, they played them once in 1947-48. You want to guess the result? Uh, UConn lost. What Correct. sport are we talking about? Basketball. Basketball. Men's uh, basketball. Tough loss to Western. Sixty-three to forty-nine. Yeah, so we're zero and one all time against Western Reserve. We are also nine and nine against WPI. Nice. That'll probably stay that way. Yeah, I would think so. Also played Wentworth and Wayne. Apparently, those are two things that exist. Have we played the uh, uh, overtime elite team? No, not yet. Could be an interesting matchup, folks. I don't know if if our our listeners have heard, but uh, former UConn men's basketball coach Kevin Ollie. Did get a new job recently as the head coach of a social media website's semi-professional basketball team. Uh, excited for our guy here. Um, you know, the overtime league, they've got an interesting little value proposition going. They're paying like star players out of high school, six-figure salary to not go to college. Always good for kids to have alternatives uh, and, and uh, all, all that, but should be interesting. Are you guys going to be keeping tabs on Kevin Ollie in the overtime league? I think I will. I, I think there's an opportunity there for one of these leagues to start up and, you know, they're never going to get all the top prospects, but they really probably only need a few of the top 50 or a hundred prospects each year to, to make it pretty interesting. And I think uh, there's parts of, of Kevin Ollie's coaching acumen that definitely suit what they're trying to do. And, and, it'll be interesting to see what he can build and who they're going to play against. I think they're going to play a lot of prep schools, but uh, overall it should be pretty interesting and, you know, hopefully it works out. I, I think he could be a good motivator and a good role model for, for those kids that uh, probably need it to just get some guidance on how to be a successful basketball player, not only in college, but 
uh, at the professional level, whether it's in the NBA or in Europe or, or wherever. So I think KL kind of checks all those boxes, uh, no matter what you think of him as a, as a head coach, at least at the collegiate level. Right. I mean, I don't know how closely like I'm going to be following the results or anything, but I'm always going to be rooting for KO. I just, yeah, like as bad as the ending was, I think we all kind of just got really fed up and frustrated with how bad the team was his last couple of years at UConn and really how far they fell. And it was time for him to go and for UConn to make a change. And obviously Dan Hurley's been great, but it's hard not to root for Kevin Ollie just with the story that he has from UConn or from LA to UConn to the NBA. And then what he did as a coach here at UConn, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for that 20, not only that 2014 title team, but the year before that, when they were banned, Mm -hmm. how good that team was, how much they kind of banded together. He really, I think it's kind of disrespectful how much people say that, Oh, that was just Jim Calhoun's team. Like, yeah, Jim Calhoun maybe was the head coach when they came here. We don't know who recruited them. The development path definitely like, Oh my God, after Shabazz's sophomore year, Calhoun's last year as a head coach, if there was an approval rating for a basketball player, Shabazz's would have been terrible. He was brutal to watch as a sophomore. He didn't pass the ball. He took horrible shots. He was just a painful player to watch. And he turned into really the best player in the country by his senior year. So yeah, it's hard not to root for Kevin Ollie and hope that he does well. And this is a really interesting venture. I've always kind of hoped that he was either going to get another head coaching opportunity in college somewhere, or he was at least going to become an assistant in the NBA, but this seems like a very interesting opportunity. So I don't know if it's going to last, but if it doesn't, I feel pretty good that it's probably not Kevin Ollie's fault if it doesn't. So I'm, just excited to see kind of what it does and hopefully he can use this to rebuild himself up a little bit. And then, like I said, maybe get a head coaching job at like, I don't know if a big school is going to give him a job, but like the central type of school, like if, well, I guess all of Connecticut's head coaching positions are taken right now, but like somewhere in the Northeast like that, or maybe somewhere out on the West coast wants to hire him. Like, I think it would be, I'd really like to see him become another head coach at the college level or at the very least become an NBA assistant again. So hopefully he can use this to get there. Yeah. I think he's got a job as an NBA assistant almost whenever he wants it. I think there's just things that are going on between him and the university that need to get sorted out first. Um, But when, or if that gets sorted out um, time heals most things. So I I think he'll end up kind of getting a job back in, in basketball. Um, you know, more standard basketball, meaning college or, or professional uh, at some point. He He's definitely talented, and I think it's just a matter of time. Yeah, and look, he's he's. I totally agree that the, like, reasons for his failure are are just so, like, grossly oversimplified. Um, and, and you also can't discount the fact that he was dealing with this unprecedented situation of a program with three and four national championships downgrading its conference. Like when the hell does that ever happen? Um, arguably Kevin Ollie's biggest flaw was his, was that he did not adapt his recruiting strategy for, for the American and just like kept going after top kids. And maybe in the big East, it might've gone a little bit better um, arguably. And, and like, you know, they say, Oh, he wasn't developing. Just like you said, Connolly, Shabazz Napier developed a ton. Niles Giffey, uh, you know, de- developed a ton. DeAndre Daniels, like these guys didn't just like pop out great players. They they became better players 
down the road, Lasan Chroma was recruited onto that team as a late addition. So like, uh, of course, Ollie and his staff were doing some development. My, you know, my, my unofficial that I can't prove theory is just, you know, some, some of the wheels came off. Some of his confidence got too high after the title. Maybe some of the things in his personal life as well. Don't want to speculate too much on that, but um, you know, there's, there's just so much going on and um, you know, maybe falling out with different people, including his mentor, Jim Calhoun, you know, all of these things can contribute to um, like a, a more difficult environment than you may have expected. The athletic director changed, you know, so, so many different, different things that we don't know the full story on um, that. I think just Kevin Ollie does deserve the benefit of the doubt on from that. And yeah, look, from, from our, my perspective, rooting for the guy to succeed and, and for him to find something that he wants in the basketball world. And look, uh, over time and what they're doing is meant to be uh, a system that exists kind of like a, like in rebellion to the NCAA in a way that is uh, making up for some of its, its downfalls and some of the things that it does not do and provide for its players. So I think there's something, something positive there as well. Um, the other mistake, you know, that Ollie made at UConn was that he wanted to run a really modern pro style offense and you can't necessarily do that with the kinds of recruits he was getting. Uh, so I think that's also, you know, that, that may not be the case on this team where you're, you're offering 17 year olds, a six figure salary. So, um, rooting for AKO and maybe, maybe this overtime thing will work out too. Right. And another thing is that in the limited interviews he has given since leaving UConn, he's always talked about how he still really loves UConn, how he still will even follow the program because it still is his program. And another factor that I think that gets overlooked is that he was an assistant coach for, I believe it was two years, right? Before he became a head coach, he was a head coach for four years total. That is very, very, very limited coaching experience. And I think, yeah, winning that national championship in your fourth year, just coaching in general, that probably does change your mindset. So if he could have maybe had a more, I guess, traditional route where he was an assistant coach at UConn for four years, and then, I don't know, someone like Rhode Island or a lower school gave him a shot and he could coach there for like six to eight years and he could make his mistakes and he could realize, Oh, I can't run this pro offense at this level that I want to. Let me bring in a guy that can help me simplify it or this and that. I know who I need to recruit for. I know this is how to kind of work with players because I think there was a very clear dividing line in the sand where yeah, guys before this date, maybe, I don't know, 2015, developed pretty substantially under Ollie. And then it seemed like none of the guys after that date really seemed to develop. So I think he's just still so young as a coach that he didn't get it anywhere to go make his mistakes. And then I think just it's human nature that you, when you end up at the peak of your sport, you are probably going to assume that everything you're doing is the right way to do it. And if someone who's never done it is trying to tell you differently, it's like, all right, well, like, what do you know? You haven't won a national championship. And I have, I don't know if that was it, but it always has kind of felt like that national championship really changed things. So I, I still think if he got a chance to go at a lower level and make his mistakes as a head coach and really, really learn the ins and outs of what it means to coach in college, I think that would be a really, I think he could end up still being a really good college coach. 
and, and we don't need to super like relitigate his history, but we also just cannot understate the nature of the job that he accepted at UConn to be the head coach on a nine month contract for a team that was banned from the postseason. You know, like it's just a, you know, and, and also was losing uh, two first round NBA draft picks and another two guys to transfer. Uh, I think one of which was a key starter and one of which we could maybe call it more of a key bench player, but you know, it was not an easy ready-made situation that, that he inherited either. So the fact that they were solid in 2013 and, and 2014 was so far beyond our expectations that uh, I think, yeah, we, we need to give him a lot of credit, but also just recognize that he signed up for something really, really tough because he loves the school. He wanted to continue what Jim Calhoun was doing, da, 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 et cetera. So um, yeah, I, I do hope the fans can soften the hatred and bile that we see directed towards Kevin Ollie. And I don't think it's the entire fan base either. I think if anything, it's probably just a vocal minority. Like I remember someone threw out the tweet of who do you credit the 2014 title more with the poll options. And like, it felt like the overwhelming response to that, at least that I saw was that, okay, it's kind of a little ridiculous to be, discussing this because Kevin Ollie does deserve the credit. So I think the rational, the, the average UConn fan probably understands that. Yeah. It didn't work out with Ollie, but, but still like he's a UConn guy through and through. So I feel like he probably still is viewed positively. If we put out a, an approval rating, I don't know if that's the right word, but just like a, a poll about how people view Kevin Ollie, if it's positive or negative, I feel like the majority would come out positive and it would probably be a pretty heavy majority. I think so. Maybe it'd be close, man. I don't know. First of all, again, this, I don't, I, I question the existence of this average rational Yukon fan. Um, but, but even beyond that, I, I do think it'd be, I do think it'd be closer than you think. Uh, I don't know. Maybe who knows. Speaking of bile and negative commentary, UConn football will be resuming activities this fall. The Huskies took the 2020 season off. They earned a New York Times national championship, which we're all very proud of. Hang the banner. Um, We should hang a banner. And, you know, I think taking a year off was good for everyone. You know, uh, we are advocates for mental health here. And I think uh, the way that that really turned out is that for anyone who's a UConn fan or who writes about UConn sports or just cares a little bit about uh, watching good football for all of them. It was a good, good little break. Um, and now I think we've, we've all talked about this off of the podcast. We're kind of like eager to see what's going on with these guys. I don't want to forget the fact that shortly after the last season that they did play about 25 or so guys did transfer out. So that did happen again, which means that we really don't know a whole lot about who the starters are, who the depth guys are. We have no clue who did well last year. We don't have a ton of info to work with, even off of the 2019 season. For those who care to recall, um, maybe what, three or four different guys started under center. Uh, Randy Edsel stopped publishing a depth chart, but rather a participation list. Um, and I don't know, I feel like we're just going to get a lot of the same through the offseason. And it might just be a lot of question marks until that first game against Fresno State because Randy is playing chess while all of us are playing checkers. But 
at the same time, now that we've gotten, uh, now that I've gotten some jokes out, there is reason for optimism around the structure of the program. They did just make this huge move to independence. They secured a TV deal, uh, which is great. And they've got a really good looking schedule. Um, they recently added Wake Forest for a home and home. I think another ACC school adding to the list of uh, Duke, NC State, um, who else? I think Maryland is on the, on the books for that. Clemson. And Clemson is not a home and home, unfortunately, but they are going to pay us seven figures to go there and take a beating. And we will do that. That is a uh, part of the plan now. So um, I'm, I'm excited for the 2021 schedule, you know, like this past weekend, I got together with some friends. We looked at the UConn football schedule. We we're like, Hey, we might, we might check out some of these games. They'll open with, uh, well, they'll open at Fresno State. So um, good on you if you are dedicated enough to go to that. But if not, their home opener will be Labor Day weekend against Holy Cross. Hopefully they can avoid the tight embarrassment of the 2017 opener and take care of them comfortably, but who knows. The next week they'll have Purdue, so hosting a Power 5 opponent. They'll be at Army after that. That's always an interesting venue at West Point. Unfortunately, um, Army is quite good, unlike the last couple of times that UConn and Army played. So don't have our hopes up too high for that, but should be an interesting game to go to uh, if you're a fan of historic venues and that kind of thing and the United States Army, maybe. A couple weeks later, they'll be at Vanderbilt trip to Nashville. Who could say no to that at UMass? Uh, they'll be hosting Yale. That's, you know, interesting, fun, exciting. Good to get that rivalry back on the books. Two weeks later at Clemson, a game which I will be going to uh, very excitedly because again, great venue, uh, opportunity to make an interesting trip. And the future schedule, you know, when you look at 22, 23, it looks good. I think UConn can recruit off of this. Um, I think if they can take something that slightly resembles a step forward in 2021, something we've been looking for really aggressively for, for a few years, but I think if they can take a step forward, the schedule does put them in a, in a better position to recruit regionally. Um, I think that's the really important thing. You know, if you're a, if you're a two and a half star kid who's from Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or New York, and you're choosing between um, UConn and the American Athletic Conference. And it's just a tough thing to choose that over some of the options that may be available to you. Uh, UConn with an independent schedule looks a little bit better. More games your family can go to, more games your friends can go to, more teams whose names you recognize because you live here and not in the Midwest. So I think all of those are great things. So on football, I have some optimism. I don't have some immediate optimism and I still really question a little bit or a lot of what's going on on a detailed team level. But at the same time, I do think there are some undercurrents that give us reason for optimism. And hey, at least we'll see some football sometime soon. Yeah, I don't know if I'm necessarily optimistic or excited for anything just because I think the past however many seasons have kind of kicked any of that out of me when it comes to UConn football but I'm 
just out of sheer curiosity looking forward to the season just because we have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like and i've said this a bunch to people or privately that i don't know what this team is going to look like i think it's more than possible that they like don't win a game or something like that as they're in the hunt for a bowl not necessarily making a bowl but you have three fcs schools on your schedule in holy cross yale and umass who yes they're technically f BS, they're an FCS school. Let's be like, we don't need to kid ourselves with that. So those are three games that you should be winning. I mean, God, UMass is just like, if we think UConn's bad, like UMass just takes it to a different level of bad. So a lot of people might say UConn is an FCS, a glorified FCS school these days, and it would be hard to argue against that. Right. But at least we have a history of success and there's a possibility that we could be good. Like UMass has just been God awful since moving up to FBS every single year. They've never even had a glimmer of hope. Totally. So you should be three and nine, like bare minimum. Like if they go just three and nine, I'm probably going to be disappointed four and eight with some substantial progress in terms of the eye test. Yeah. I think that's probably pretty acceptable. I mean, look at the Illinois game a couple of years ago, they had, three and a half quarters where they looked like a competent football team. And that were three, that was three and a half more quarters than we'd seen in a long time from that team. So I'm just kind of excited to see what it all looks like. I hope my optimism or just anticipation doesn't all dry up by week three or something like that. I think there are some intriguing options at the quarterback position. Jack Zergiotis wasn't necessarily Dan Orlovsky, but he showed some signs where maybe he could be a good player, especially with this much time off. Same thing with Steve Krajewski, Michael Leone. I remember getting very, very high marks in camp before he got hurt and ended up not even being able to play. So they've got a good running back in Kevin Mensa. I think they're going to have a good offensive line. So that's at least the start of a good offense. They've got some pieces on the defensive end. I mean, Travis Jones should be just a monster this upcoming year. And Randy Edsel has said numerous times that they use this season off to get bigger, to get faster and to get stronger. And Randy Edsel before that was always talking about how they didn't have that. So that excuse is out the book. If this team comes out and just starts laying an egg. So maybe if we want to get super optimistic, they have the physical ability they they can hold up to other teams physically now where they couldn't in years past. They've got a lot of guys with experience in the system where all they've had time to do is learn the past few years. They shouldn't be all that injured because they haven't been playing live games and they have the potential to maybe have an interesting offense. You know, if they have someone who's competent calling the plays. So I'm, I'm like just excited in that regard. We'll see if that excitement is warranted by any means but yeah like you said it's an exciting schedule i think the very least having yale on there having even umass i think it's good to have umass on the schedule i said this before that they should be on the schedule every year just because it's a nice local game i assume umass fans exists that we could banter back and forward with them getting to go to army every couple years is also fun so yeah it's more exciting than it could be in the american i'd rather get curb stomped 63 to five by Clemson compared to UCF or Houston. That's just a much more enjoyable curb stomping. So funny. You mentioned them. We'll be playing both of them this year. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. All three of them. (laughs) UConn will be at UCF and, uh, and then hosting Houston. I think it's a, I think they had a home and home. They, yeah, they have a home and home with Houston 
but UCF is paying UConn like a million dollars to go there. Again, making back that money just like that. Buyout fee, what buyout fee? UCF is paying us to play them in football. They want the conflict back. Yeah. Houston's no. also never won at the rent. It's true. Houston but no, never I... won at the rent? Houston. Oh, Houston never. That's true. That is true. Just like UConn is undefeated against Notre Dame. UConn's undefeated against Notre Dame, and Houston was undefeated until they visited Rensher Field one time. They were undefeated and ranked in the top 10 or whatever until they visited Rensher Field and Timmy Boyle had something to say about it. Um, I, I think the other good thing um, is, yeah, to, to just get into the team a little bit, I, I think the defense could be potentially even solid. Uh, like you said, I mean, the front seven has people. By solid, I mean not giving up 50 points a game, you know, which is like literally the old baseline of where they were. Uh, we have so we have such low expectations here and the last couple of years they've still managed to get in way under them yeah disappointing you you just have to not totally suck you can suck a little bit that's fine just don't be like the worst team in the country they've got at least some experience they're not starting true freshmen at every position uh which is literally the case like three years ago yeah i mean i've got some high hopes for swaggy z and and krajewski that one of them could uh could be a decent quarterback. I, the problem is I live reps is super important. Um, football coaches care a lot about it. That's why Randy Etzel was starting freshman three years ago and four years ago to begin with is he valued those live reps so much. So they don't get that. And I think at quarterback, that's, that's super important. Um, but then just for, for the people just tailgates at the rent, baby, come on. That maybe the best, Best thing about UConn football the past 10 years has been that at least you could drive your car and some meats uh, over to the parking lot in East Hartford, grill them up, have some beverages, and maybe check out some of a football game. But, uh, you know, the tailgates are always live, and I enjoy them greatly. Uh, and and that is something I did really, truly miss last year, I will say. Yeah, I, I think it'll be good to see some some football games at the rent against opponents that – I would say even the average UConn fan cares about. And I think there's definitely a, still a ton of question marks with this team. But like you said, Dan, between Kevin Mensa at running back, Travis Jones on, on the defensive line, Cam Ross, a wide receiver, who was honestly one of the best freshman wide receivers in the country the last time that UConn played, um, there, there's definitely some interesting young talent. Uh, there is, you know, they do have probably the worst offensive coordinator in the country calling their plays still, which is, is going to hurt them. Um, but there's still enough interest there to kind of see how things shake out. I know I was reading Bill Connolly's preview uh, on the team for 2021, and it's really hard to even take a guess at what this team is going to look like between them being so bad in 2019 and having 2020 off. But one thing that Connolly did point out, and I do think it's right, is that there was a ton of transfers, and I can't stress this enough, a ton of transfers uh, after the 2019 season, but there really wasn't that many in this year off. And that could be a testament to something that Edsel is building. And maybe there actually is some culture and some camaraderie and momentum within the program. It could just be crazy luck because, you know, it could be, you don't always have 25 people leave in one year. So maybe it's just things kind of averaging out, but um, maybe there is something 
building there. And that doesn't mean that this team is going to beat a bowl game. I'd be shocked if, or make a bowl game. I'd be shocked if this team beats Yale, um, to be totally honest, just because Yale's a, a good program and has had good teams the past three, four years. Um, but maybe this is a sign that the foundation that Etzel's always talked about is actually being built and we might see progress, not necessarily in wins and losses, but in competitive football games and in playing four quarters of football that's watchable and, and you know, at an actual division one level. So uh, the expectations are low. I think this year off is going to be really, really interesting uh, to see what it does to, to the players and the program and the fans. Honestly, I'm curious to see how many fans really show up, um, not even because of the independent stuff, but just because of the year off. Uh, but it should be fun. The schedule's great. The schedule's going to be great for years to come. And it'll be interesting to see what this team looks like at the end of the season. Yeah, it's kind of tough opening on the road with Fresno State, who was a decent team in the Mountain West last year. I think they were actually a really good team in the Mountain West last year because at least if you open at home against an FCS school and maybe with improvement, like this team can kick the crap out of Holy Cross, like they should be beating FCS teams each year, then you can kind of ride that wave for a couple weeks. But if they go out to Fresno and just get rocked by, I mean, like, Fresno State can be a good team, but losing to Fresno State, just the sound of that hurts. So if you go out there, lose by three touchdowns, and people see that when they look at the score, when they're thinking about going to the Holy Cross game, it might be a tougher sell, especially Labor Day weekend. Things are opening back up. Might be kind of tough to get people to go to a UConn football game when, okay, well, it looks like they're going to suck again, so what's the point of coming and maybe hoping that they're going to be better. So I think it's just kind of a tough draw with the way the schedule falls. You almost wish that it could be flipped, but maybe because they go out West and the West coast doesn't really exist. Nobody actually notices when they get beat badly. Yeah. It's week zero. Uh, so it's not like the actual first week of college football. And um, I mean, what, you know, what did, what did, uh, what did SP plus have it at like a 9% chance of winning. So it's one of the, tougher games on the schedule for UConn. So um, I think a, a big loss might be a given there, but I think what we want to avoid is the embarrassing blowout loss where the other team scores a touchdown on every single possession, uh, half of them on just some disgusting broken play that goes for 60 yards. Um, if they can avoid that and, and just keep nasty blowouts to a minimum, you know, drop a four and eight, and that would be super exciting. Even three, winning those three that we've talked about would be, would be incredible. All right, that's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.